Welcome to Peer to Peer, the podcast, brought to you by Rainer. Listen in as we hear from top surgeons having great conversations with their peers about hot and popular topics in ophthalmology. In this episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, Dr. Ben LaHood from Australia and Dr. Damien Gatanel from France sit down to discuss advanced IOLs. Dr. Ben LaHood, refractive cataract and laser vision correction surgeon from Australia, has gained international recognition for his extensive research on astigmatism management and biometry, which is regularly shared around the world. Dr. Damien Gatinel is among the world's leading experts in refractive surgery and head of the Department of Refractive and Anterior Segment Surgery at the Rothschild Hospital Foundation in France. He is the author of more than 170 publications in peer-reviewed journals and also the owner of several IOL patents. Let's dive in. Welcome to another peer-to-peer podcast hosted by Rainer. I'm your host, Dr. Ben LaHood. Today we are discussing advanced IOL optics from innovations and the remaining gaps in today's offerings to who is leading the way in advanced optics. Today I'm joined by Dr. Gatinel. Thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. To kick things off, This is quite a big question, but can you tell me about how our understanding of optics has changed in recent years? Uh, Well, um, we moved from a situation where the lens was uh, there to uh, just uh, make the eye corrected for distance to more sophisticated uh, ambitions such as uh, uh, making the patient uh, spectacle free. To achieve this, because we don't have any effective uh, accommodative lens or a system which would provide a kind of dynamic response to accommodation or pseudo-accommodation. We have to cope with uh, what we are um, left with, which is uh, optical properties, refraction, aberrations, and diffraction. And beyond this, I don't see many things, although I know many companies, they employ uh, uh, fancy semantics, let's (laughs) say, from a physical optical standpoint you have to again deal with uh, properties of uh, light propagation which is in that context essentially uh, refraction and diffraction and you have pure refractive lens diffractive lenses and uh, aspheric lenses which are category you have segmented lenses etc etc but they always use those two properties to propagate light in a way that one, two, or three, or more foci will be created, or zones of foci extension, which is sometimes also described. It's a a good answer to a complicated question, thank you. Uh, One really impressive thing about you, Damien, amongst other things, is that you went back to university, did a PhD in mathematics, Mm -hmm. and redesigned how we look at higher-order aberrations. Mm -hmm. Can you Tell us why that needed to be done. Oh, that's a good point. It, I think um, initially when I was introduced to amberometry, which was at the beginning of my career, like uh, I would say now 20 years ago, time flies, um, the introduction of amberometry was interesting because it was designed to first uh, provide laser customized ablation. So amberometers were just made to acquire wavefront information transfer it to an excimer laser and do uh, customized ablation. But of course, when you have an aberrometer, you are excited because you will try to figure out what's beyond astigmatism and sphere. And at that time, the science of aberrometry was born in astronomy or in uh, 
other other domains than ophthalmology, let's say. So the, 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 the mathematical functions that are used to describe the wavefront are very efficient for some tasks, but they do not really, um, I would say, they are not optimal to describe uh, the ocular properties, especially when you want to distinguish between refraction, what we call low-order aberration, and irregular astigmatism, which is high-order aberration. The reason is that with Zernike polynomials, there is a not a very clear distinction in the sense of ophthalmic, um, um, ophthalmic uh, splits between the low and the high order aberration. So when you manipulate spherical aberration in ophthalmology, for example, with the Zernike concept or mode, you, in, you play also with myopia or hyperopia depending on the sign of the spherical aberration, and that's confusing. So that's what uh, drove me to uh, first try to analyze this, to, to see why there was some uh, mismatch between clinical refraction and wavefront-predicted refraction based on Zorniki analysis. Once I understood the problem, I could have stopped there, but uh, I thought it would be maybe interesting to develop a modified Zorniki or a new classification to better segregate between what you can correct with spectacles and what you cannot. So there's less ambiguity. And this ambiguity has caused many problems like, for example, if you do laser customized ablation with aspheric press B profile, you know that if you correct too much collaboration, it has to be compensated. Those C4, C12, for those mm. who know that, uh, are just a consequence of this Zernike uh, kind of ambiguity, uh, which does not, again, um, uh, does not really answer a clinical question. It's creating confusion. So that's why we did this, and uh, we are uh, hoping that this will become, in the future, one way to analyze wavefront ocular aberration uh, and uh, complement the Zorniki classification, which is not bad in, in some applications, but for interpreting clinical refraction, it's not good. It's very Especially in aberrated eyes, so that's really where we need this. Mm. In normal eyes, the difference is minimal, but as soon as you have aberration, you, it creates a little confusion. Uh, that leads to the next point is, uh, you know, eyewell manufacturers seem very good at dealing with sphere and cylinder. Uh, do you think that the handling of high-road aberrations needs to be part of eyewell design? Oh, certainly. Um, when uh, we first um, worked with aspheric lenses, the idea, they were monofocal, and the idea was to improve the quality of the focus for distance vision to compensate for corneal spherical aberration, which is positive. I have done some, uh, I have done some uh, lab or optical bench experiments with IOLs, and the impact of spherical aberration is huge on optical quality and depth of focus. And um, this is really part of the equation. By the way, before um, my first um, introduction to this world was that I, I was asked to design the astrocity of, uh, of a monofocal lens. This was uh, also 20 years ago. Um, and uh, this lens was from a company named Physiol in Belgium, the one with which I developed the trifocal later on. But the first interaction I had with them was that I was asked to design the astrocity. Why that? Because I had worked with BNL and Alcon to explain what spherical collaboration was to doctors. And that company Maybe she uh, they probably was right at that time. They saw all oh, these doctors understand this thing. Mm -hmm. 
and it's probably cheap, we don't pay him. <laughs> so they sent me an Excel file, I filled it with what I thought, I did a little mathematical modeling, etc. I, I sent back the astrocity for the lens from one diopter to 28, 9, and uh, I was expecting them to call me back and say, Damien, doesn't work, your, <laughs> your model doesn't work when we made the lens, but surprisingly, they called me and they say, yeah, it works fine, we obtained the result that you were predicting with your calculation. I was nice. surprised, seriously. And this is where uh, the collaboration began. And at that time, you could see that when you play with uh, astrocity, sometimes people are confused between astrocity and circular aberration. Astrocity is a way to, to control circular aberration. What you need is controlling circular aberration. Astrocity management is a way that you can shape the wavefront so to modify the circular aberration. And um, this, uh, this has a large impact on uh, on the, even on the refraction in some ways, when you have a lot of circular aberration, the best focal plane is changing. And uh, interestingly, again, with Zernicke polynomials, it's not as clear as to be described as with uh, the classification low degree, high degree. Uh, when you're thinking about spherical aberration with these lenses, uh, one of the lenses that we're gonna discuss is the EMV lens, which has added spherical aberration. How do you actually evaluate lenses? Because from someone that doesn't work in a lab, uh, doesn't have a huge knowledge of optics, I hear about optical bench testing, mm -hmm. these sort of concepts. What does it actually involve? What are you actually doing? <laughs> so an optical bench, I don't do it myself. Oh, I, I won a prize in France uh, for, for some research, which I used to buy an optical bench from a Belgium company again. I have 25% Belgian blood, more or less, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm tied to Belgium in some ways. And this company called Lambda X, they have a bench, but the bench would be very similar to a Fonco photometer, the, you know, the things you use to measure spectacle power. Mm -hmm. So of course, you don't put the lens like you would put a spectacle, it has to be manipulated in a cartridge, but you put saline solution, you put an IR in a cartridge, you put the cartridge in this, in this instrument, and this instrument is a sophisticated interferometer. So it basically sends light through the lens, collects the light after, and from this infers the sphericity of the lens, the optical aberration that the lens induces. And that's the prerequisite. Number one is to get the bench. The second prerequisite is to have someone work on it because I'm too busy. So I'm lucky that I have a a PhD student from Israel, Dr. Benjamin Stern, who is currently, maybe not because in France it's time to bed now, <laughs> but um, he would be today. He should still be working right now. He would yeah. be on the bench measuring IOLs and doing curves uh, to analyze contrast under certain conditions. That's the second prerequisite. Have someone knowledgeable enough to master those things and, and, and dedicate it to this. And the third is to interact nicely with, with companies to to get lens sample, which is not easy, and uh, some some manufacturers refuse to send their lens, and uh, I think we as doctors should know exactly what we put in our patient's eye, and I think like in orthopedics, for example, if you change the hip, I'm sure that orthopedic surgeon know exactly the length, the width, the, the shape, the angle, blah, 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 the material, and we as doctors, we know the power of the lens, we have an A constant. We know it's hydrophilic, hydrophobic, maybe the size of the optic, but that's it. We don't really know how the optic is really performing, or even there's no way to describe beyond aspheric or 
diffractive. My goal is to learn myself uh, uh, how they work and, uh, and, and I'm very interested to study them like you would study species under a microscope. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing. And with Benjamin, we, we discover uh, sometimes things that are not really labeled in the lens description, usually desirable features. Sometimes surprising features, but uh, it's still very interesting because this is really the truth and we don't care of the semantics. We want to know exactly the shape and the way the lens uh, uh, refracts, diffracts light, etc. in order to better apprehend the, the lens itself. From the optical pinch testing, uh, I can understand you, you get the true optical properties of the lens. Uh, how do you then go and say uh, interpret how this will work inside an eye? Because you know the eye is decentered; it's not a telescope. There's all these problems. Can you simulate that as well? Oh, it's a very good question. Um, you are very right. Um, in vitro lens testing is uh, limited to actual measurements, although there are benches where you can play with tilt, etc. But so far, we are just trying to get little uh, uh, investigations on, I mean, not little, we are limited to axis measurement, uh, but we can vary spherical aberration by the amount we need, even in a negative way now. Uh, so we can simulate post-lasic, post-myopic lasik, post-hyperopic lasik. That's quite interesting, for example. And uh, we can simulate aspheric corneas, um, and uh, we also have to admit that if we do this test, it's under the best condition that is in a human eye. As you know, the pow power that you implant may not lead to the exact refraction, but at least here, what is uh, assumed is that the lens is perfectly centered, the lens is perfectly um, uh, shining the light on the plane it's supposed to do, and then we analyze the, the lens and we derive some properties that as you suggested, maybe very modulated or altered in a human eye where surfaces are not center, where the pupil plays a, also a, a dramatic uh, role probably on the, on the, on the image quality, etc, etc. As I was alluding in my little story when I did the asphoricity, in many scientific domains, what you have on equations does not really work well, especially in physics, because you forgot to, mm -hmm. to take into account this, this variable. In optics, in fact, variables are a bit limited. There's no wind, like when you do motion analysis, there's mm -hmm. no gravity to take into account, there's no time effect much. So at the end, it's very geometric. And what you predict is really what you get, very surprisingly. And this is the elegance of this field is that like when we developed the trifocal lens, we were like, will, we, will this really cover intermediate vision? And uh, on the bench it did, and in the first patient eye, we asked the patient, can you read your computer? And the patient said, of course, why do you ask this question? Why are you so excited? Yeah, is this the first time you've used this? Yeah. yeah no, of course, because when we put the first time the lens, we did not really insist on intermediate vision. We, we told the patient, you should be able to read. And uh, but and, we were and like, the and the computer, and the computer. They said, yeah, that's okay. But I read. No, but on the computer, <laughs> yes, I told you. And, uh, and and it worked as well nicely. So I think it's uh, it's interesting that what you see is a bit what you get to some extent. From, from your experience of designing a lens and then putting it in the eye, it must be a very exciting time, but very nervous time. When, mm -hmm. when, you know, when you're a doctor and a patient says, have you done this before? And you always have to 
lie and say yes many times. Yes, that's uh, what my mom said when, uh, when she got cataract surgery. Have you done this surgery before? <laughs> <laughs> and but, so uh, what, yeah. what, how do you approach that with patients with well, a, a new product? Um, that's a good question. Usually you have to select the patient that is not too demanding in some ways and you have to under-promise. So if there is an extra benefit of the lens, you will highlight it after the surgery rather than before. I think that's the first thing to do. Um, also, in my experience, and um, I think this is more and more proven, what is the best predictor of a lens success, especially when the lens are multifocal or prone to give side effect, is the level of cataract that you do mm. preoperatively. Those patients with huge cataract where out of 10 photons, only one will hit the retina and maybe not at the right place. They will be pleased by any lens. I'm, I, I'm a bit blunt and caricatural, but that's really how it is. The guy who, or the, the, the patient who has a 2020 uncorrected refractive lens exchange, who's myopic, so benefit from excellent near. This is walking on thin ice. And uh, in between, you have those patients with mild cataracts that are not so much impaired and on, on who you really need to deliver what you promised. But when I have a new lens to test, I usually have a high cataract patient not really highlight the lens properties and then post-op try to see if really the performance is there. That's, yeah, that's the way to do and then you get confidence and if the lens is good and brings something new to your practice you keep it I think it's, uh, it's, uh, there's no magic things here. Mm. What, what works uh, is usually uh, selected naturally it's natural selection on the market I think mm. at the end. Uh, to anyone listening, there's a great paper that you and your previous fellow, Dr. Radhika oh, Rappa, Radhika Rappa from the UK, yes. yeah, uh, that summarizes all the different multifocal lenses. Mm -hmm. So anyone that's listening might want to have a look at that. That was a great paper. Yeah, yeah, she did a fantastic work, Radhika, and she she went she tackled this big issue. And uh, I told her I can I, I could help her, of course, to to navigate with the, these things. But she was like. Uh, the first, like on the boat, she was uh, facing the waves <laughs> and uh, she received many waves because she had uh, many lenses to classify and, uh, and, um, and uh, then we came with this classification which, which is now five years old and we probably will redo a next uh, paper. With you having designed the first trifocal lens mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for it, I, I like the fine vision lens, do you still in your practice use EDOF lenses? Oh, um, I'm, I'm starting to, um, I, in fact, before I was a bit uh, like uh, Manichaean, I was like, okay, you need uh, to see better, but you don't care of spectacle dependence, monofocal. If you want to be spectacle free, trifocal, because reading is what makes, uh, I mean, usually the patient coming to you. Uh, I don't have many patients who tell me I just need the computer reading. Yeah. I just uh, want uh, the intermediate vision, no. But in fact, in life, in the 20s now, if you go down the street, what you see are not like what you were seeing before. 20 years ago, people reading newspaper at the cafe in Paris. Mm. You know, this typical iconic image of yeah, Paris. That's what cafe, I still hope. Cafe yeah. de Flore with someone reading Le Monde. Exactly. Uh, this is uh, not real? And, 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 not anymore. Oh, that's disgraceful. When I see someone with a newspaper at the Paris cafe, no, I'm like always, uh, can, we see, can, we have, can we have a Can we take a photo? <laughs> yeah, let's take a photo. No, but I'm serious. People are all on their smartphones or, or, or laptops like you are. And uh, they, they work at intermediate vision range, more or less. 
And uh, so intermediate vision is quite probably what people need uh, more than near vision for those who don't read much. And that's what I ask my patient. Now, how much time do you read? Some say, I just read my smartphone or my laptop or my tablet. Some say, I don't read. Some say, I'm an avid reader. Do you trust them? Well, um, reasonably. Uh, I, just, um, I just have some that are disappointed. They say, I don't read anything. And then I get them back and like, oh, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I actually do read quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, because reading means, uh, it's, uh, it depends on what you say. Reading means reading books or reading identifying close mm. uh, details and that's a different thing so you have to like putting makeup can be a close task uh, fixing something can be a close task so there are people they don't read but they fix things or mm. they do they play with uh, like uh, little things and they need near vision so you have to be broad in your uh, statement that, I mean, as, as you know the the, the, the the pre-op evaluation is critical in those things mm. I agree with you I, I think I've Took, a t- took some time to work out which patients, whether I needed a lens in between. I have monofocals, I have trifocals. Do I really need an EDOF? But there's mm-hmm. some patients that do. Or you can use EDOF in monovision situations. At least when the patient gets myopic error, maybe if you can reduce... I mean, if you, on the non-dominant eye, you can put an EDOF and target a bit less myopia. So the, 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 the eye will be not as different for distance... Uh, uh, hmm. vision than the dominant eye which is uh, f- the target for, for distance. Now this uh, podcast is brought to us by Rainer so it would be rude of me not to speak about the mm-hmm. EMV lens. Mm-hmm. Have you had this on your optical bench? Yes we did of course one of the first lens we analyzed and uh, what do you think? Well so we... Well, I suppose we, not what do you think what are the objective yeah, outcomes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, what I think is uh, it's a lens that we measured and <laughs> what we found is uh, that it was really providing uh, we found it was providing the positive collaboration that was uh, described and uh, ex- explained I would say much clearly than with other companies for the mechanism of effect and it was there and uh, we compared the lens to to aspheric, negatively aspherized lens, uh, monofocal lenses, and the um, effect was opposite. We compared also the lens with spherical IOLs that we used in the past, and we found closer results with this lens than with aspheric neutral or uh, moderately negatively aspherized lenses. So it was really in line with what, what we were expecting in terms of the depth of focus. And we, we study also the lens under different scenarios. So when we add positive collaboration, when we reduce it, when we add negative collaboration, etc., etc. If you have negative collaboration in a cornea and you put the Reiner EMV, it can be difficult to distinguish the curves from a monofocal on a non-aberrated cornea because the negative uh, aberration are balanced by the lens. Uh, at least on the bench where everything is aligned well mm. and that's uh, interesting so again what what you see is what you get and what you predict is what you what you observe is what's predicted i would say with the aspherical lenses uh, there's some discussion about their robustness to decentration and mm-hmm. being an optical system like mm-hmm. the eye can you explain the difference between a spherical lens uh, and uh, an aspherical lens in terms of why that is, why that decentration might make a difference. Um, I know that's probably a difficult concept without a whiteboard to explain, mm-hmm. but 
could you sort of roughly explain why that is? Okay, so what you have to figure out first is, are you speaking of an eye with a certain cornea? or I mean, are you considering the IOL by itself or behind a cornea? That's the first thing. If it's by itself, which is the way to analyze the IOL, then the way to characterize it is to first consider an image of a distance target. So the rays are incoming in parallel. They hit the IOL, and then I'm speaking for the people who listen so yep. that they can have a mental image of that. So you have a parallel bundle of bundle of rays hitting the lens, and then they are focused, right? So if the rays are focused in the same location, it's an aspherical lens, which has no spherical aberration. Um, it's aberration-free lens. And that's the lens which is robust to decentration. It has been used in the past by some companies to do aberration-free IOL, that's the name of it. Now, if the rays that hit the lens are more focused peripherally, that is, cross the optical axis before then that are refracted by the center of the lens, that's positive spherical aberration, that's the Reiner case. And conversely, if the rays are focused centrally before the peripheral rays, closer to the lens, I mean, then uh, you have a negatively aberrated IOL. But that's for a bundle of ray coming from infinity. Now in an eye, the cornea focus is like the, the bundle of ray initially is fo focused first, which is sometimes uh, obviated by, by analyzing. And secondly, the, um, the um, aberration of the cornea, the spherical aberration, will modulate and interfere with that of the lens. So an aberration free can become a positive uh, system with the cornea in terms of aberration, if the cornea has positive aberration. A lens with negative circular aberration behind the cornea can behave like a, as a system as a no aberration lens, if the compensation is perfect, etc., etc. That's what makes things interesting. And again, we always discuss this in the best plane of focus, but in an eye, it's difficult to obtain always the situation you have refractive surprises. And this is where head-off lenses are nice also, is they, they will, we can see clearly on the optical bench that they are more tolerant to a little refractive uh, shifts. So in situation where uh, you're not exactly uh, sure that you will be on target, like those refractive eyes, you can select lenses to increase the aspheracity effect, decrease it, neutralize it, um, and absorb a little refractive surprise. That's qu quite complicated, it depends on what you want. That's a very good explanation. I can't even imagine doing that in another language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't even do it in English, so it's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've got a, a young surgeon that is thinking about, uh, maybe they've trained their whole life and they're using monofocal simple optics mm -hmm. and they're wanting to use some more advanced optic lenses. Would you have any advice for how to start? You spoke about perhaps starting with someone with a dense cataract so that mm. they don't notice any error quite so much, but are there any other pieces of advice that you'd give? For those who start, I think the EMV, for example, with this positive collaboration, which we know is not harmful because we had this in spherical IOLs in the past and nobody complained to me of halos and glare at least related to this shape, it was really working well. So if you can 
exaggerate a bit this positive collaboration and take a benefit out of it without inducing too much visual disturbance, that would be probably beneficial. Select and I were the IOL power calculation does not present any uh, difficulty, particular difficulty. So of course, no previous refractive surgery, actual lengths within tolerable uh, range. Uh, so if, if the eye has some uh, peculiar aspect, maybe avoid that. And then we said, of course, dense cataract. But then again, there are other variables. We didn't speak much, but pupil diameter will play a role also in the visual performance. The smaller it is, usually the higher the depth of focus. This is a fundamental thing which we apply in photography. When, when we narrow the diaphragm, the mm. depth of field increases the same in the eye. So there are patients with lenses that can really read because probably of the combination of the right level of aberration bringing the right level of depth of focus. And this is increased by a small pupil. And by the way, there are, as you know, pinhole IOLs with, mm -hmm. which exploit this phenomena also. So I think um, that's what I would recommend. Uh, no astigmatism, no, no corner astigmatism, and uh, no other related con condition of the eye. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to start. Uh, what you were saying about the size of the aperture, I know that with the different multifocal lenses, a small pupil will limit some of your near vision potentially, mm -hmm. but it will give you, like you say, some enhanced depth of focus just from the pinhole effect. Mm -hmm. With the lenses such as the, the EMV lens, is it pupil dependent as well? Um, all lenses are more or less pupil dependent, especially when they are aspheric, because aspherocity effect takes uh, a certain pupil diameter to occur because circulation is defined by the difference of focusing between periphery of the pupil and center of the pupil, or peripheral rays and central rays. So I think below 2.5, you don't really, in terms of diameter, you won't really get a, lo a lot of effect. But beyond that, what we see on our measurements, and it's probably also echoed in vivo, the performance of the lens will dictate more or less the uh, visual performance in terms of uh, uh, depth of focus, uh, maybe visual sides effects. And uh, pupil dynamics are maybe, again, not so much explored, but would deserve to be in the future, I think, because this is quite important to consider. But what we don't know exactly also is the impact of the anterior chamber depth, because it is probably also playing an important role in the visual performance. So I think in the future, we will probably move from uh, IOL power calculation to more sophisticated IOL performance prediction. It will be still uh, proximity in terms of denomination, but the, the, the goal will be much different. We will not only predict the IOL power to make the iometropic for distance, but we will probably predict a certain, let's say, MTF curve, you know, modulation transfer curve, that is a contrast, optical contrast curve, or or maybe more uh, practically a, a range of uh, unaided vision things like that, and that will be taking into account those pupil dynamics, the lens position, the corneal characteristics, etc., uh, etc. Et and then we will move uh, to customization also in terms of lens, and uh, that will be uh, probably an interesting phase to follow, I think. Do you and we, we hope we take part of this. 
Yeah, I was going to say your your formula already the Pearl DGS is mm-hmm. doing very well, uh, but do you see a change, a, a real shift towards more ray tracing type analysis in the future? Yes and no. It depends on what you want to uh, predict. If it's just paraxial power, you don't really need ray tracing because paraxial formulas are in fact an approximation of ray tracing constra- uh, constrained to the very limited uh, central location. But of course, if you go larger than that on the whole pupil, as I said, then you need to consider uh, ray tracing or wave front propagation, which is the mm. same concept through the whole uh, pupil. And then you will have a more uh, realistic uh, image of the uh, performance of the operated eye. But I think, as I said, um, if you want to extend your um, your analysis to um, uh, asphericity, all these things. What you need to know first is where the lens is going to sit in the eye. And all formulas have to predict that, more or less. Mm. Not all, by the way, but most of them. I mean, like the pure artificial intelligence formula, like the hill, seems to predict an IOL power without any optical or even ELP concept inside. Why not? But if you do simulation more sophisticated like we are discussing, and if your intention is to put an eye well in an eye before the surgery virtually, uh, you need to know where this eye well will be. And formulas like, uh, like the Pearl, the Barrett, the Evo, etc., they predict an eye well plane. They have to, and then they calculate the power. But the first thing in eye well power calculation is to predict, uh, with, with these formulas at least, where the lens is going to sit, and that's where uh, really, they make their differences uh, in terms of uh, performance, those formulas. So we will need still Pearl or equivalent to, 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 to achieve this task. Do you think we will ever 100% get the IOL position prediction perfect? Oh, or never. Um, we're going to be relying on post-operative adjustments still? Yeah. What you need is to reduce the uncertainty. One way to do it is, again, and we come back to what we were discussing, is to get information on the lens design, which includes the thickness of the lens, the balance between the anterior and posterior surface power, which we call the lens design or lens shape factor, that controls also for the circular aberration. But this shape factor plays a role in the optical position of the IOL. Uh, We have a couple of papers coming or just published on this uh, to emphasize on this importance and um, and uh, for the reason that you don't have the design of the lens sometimes you have to make assumptions and mm. you have a little uncertainty which does not really interfere with low power lenses but which can be critical for high power lenses because the higher the power the more the same placement uncertainty will affect the refraction with, uh, we've spoken about this before, that with lens calculation and prediction for trifocal lenses, you like your uh, aim to be slightly hyperopic. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us that use those lenses agree that's the happiest patients come out slightly mm-hmm. hyperopic. With lenses such as the EMV, mm-hmm. which have positive spherical aberration, uh, what is your, I was going to say what are your feelings, but I know you're a very objective person. Uh, mm. What should we be aiming for? Yeah, yeah, my feeling were in line with what we measured and what the science would predict. Because you have positive circular aberration, um, the, 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 the 
lens will benefit from a slight um, hyperopic maybe uh, also target um, because you will extend the depth of focus uh, still uh, including the plane of the retina and you will st still get an extended depth of focus. If you are myopic, maybe you're going to be a bit too much uh, uh, myopic, I think. Um, so I, I think, and I hope I don't say something stupid, but I'm, I'm trying to remembering the, 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 the location of the peaks when we modulate the, the lens, um, the, the, the pupil aperture on the bench. And the more you open it, the more the refraction shifts toward myopia. Right? Uh, right. That's what we observed. So, so for big pupils, young people, maybe aim a little bit more hyperopic? So if you have uh, the EMV lens on the larger pupil, the refraction tends to be more myopic mm -hmm. than on a small pupil. And the opposite effect would be observed with a negatively aspherized lens. That is, if you have a negative circulation lens on a small pupil, it will be more hyperopic on a large pupil. Mm -hmm. So I think to, to balance this effect, you can target slightly plus refraction uh, on a uh, EMV-like lens and uh, the opposite for the other design. Mm. Damien, you're the perfect person to ask this question. Where do you see the future of these advanced optic IOLs going? Like, what is, what is next? Oh, ideally, customization, I think, is what would be required because as we said and discussed all this uh, moment, we have uh, influences of uh, cornea, of the lens position, of the pupil diameter. So if you could anticipate that, and maybe centration in the future as well, so that, and astigmatism, etc., and irregular astigmatism. So, well, uh, why not? I mean, if you consider an optical bench or an optical diagram and you would have a cornea, you could design a lens which perfectly fits that cornea. Will this be efficient in real life? Maybe not, if the lens does not sit where it has uh, to sit, uh, theoretically, etc., etc. But still, there is a room for improving this uh, aspect of uh, cataract surgery, I think. Then probably also dynamic changes um, to restore true accommodation instead of pseudo-accommodation. That would be very desirable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope it will come soon. Yes and mm. no, because then there's no more trifocal on the market. <laughs> so I would kill... Uh, uh, kill the golden goose. <laughs> somehow, yes. But, um, but seriously, uh, I would uh, expect to see this in my career. And uh, what I think sometimes is it's a nice thing that nature has invented or created or election has evolved so that the lens, when it's uh, deforming, can stay transparent at least five decades, uh, soft for four to five decades. And this mechanism cannot be replicated still by humans, whereas we have conquered the moon, we, mm -hmm. we have com fast computers, whatever kind of uh, technological advance we can think about, we have it. But making a lens which would stand in the eye, deform, stay transparent, no capsule or classification, it's something which I see people very smart people in the world working on. And what may happen before we achieve that is that genetics will kill aging. You know, Google, all these companies work on anti-aging, mm. block aging. And maybe before we can really release those uh, functional accommodative lenses, we will stop cataract to, from occurring. That's probably a good chance that we see this before, in fact, we 
we see a, a replacement equal to the lens. Cataract uh, prevention. That would be killing the very scary not one, thing, one yeah. golden goose, but yeah. all the golden goose. And I uh, hope it's after we both retire. <laughs> yeah. No more podcasts, nothing. Uh, no more conventions, nothing. I just can't even imagine yeah, that. Oh, That's but, a but nightmare scenario. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, for, let's, let's forget about it. Yeah, yeah, it's let's, too horrible. Let's delete that part, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We are losing people on the. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. From an, an optical design point of view, do you think that we can achieve uh, a very good depth of focus, maybe without the side effects, you know, even more than an EMV, uh, even more than, say, a diopter, a diopter and a half? Or do you think we're limited, our current technology sort of limits us with the trade-offs that the further you go, the more side effects you're going to get? Yeah. It's very, as someone said nicely, it's very difficult to make predictions, especially when they concern the future, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I think with the current technology um, we have, um, we are a bit limited to this kind of uh, kind of uh, narrow um, balance between. Extending, ex- extending the depth of focus as much as we can without creating too much halo and glare. And interestingly, also had, uh, in the past worked on this uh, for an unrelated domain, but we were at that time with uh, my mentor Dimitri Azar working on how much can we induce of aberration on a subdomain of the pupil, refractive renal diffraction, to preserve uh, visual vision quality and uh, improve the depth of focus. This was for laser surgery, not for IOL. But the answer was always the same, that if you have a zone with two millimeter within a pupil of six, where the add power is not more than one five diopter, you preserve more or less the MTF, the strain ratio is not so bad. And then it drops rapidly. It's not a linear thing. So the EDOF concept to me is a kind of a spin-off of these uh, things we discovered uh, by serendipity in some ways that the magic threshold is 1.5 diopters on the subdomain that still gets the patient to better performance in intermittent vision and maybe a bit of, of near. And it does not really create too much disturbance in the distance. Damien, thank you so much for chatting. It's been great. Uh, thank you for all your wisdom on optics and you know trying to explain things without a diagram. Really appreciate it. Uh, so thank you very much. No, thank you uh, for inviting me. It was a pleasure, as always, to discuss with you. And, uh, and uh, I hope the listeners will uh, enjoy the program. I'm sure they will. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. In the next episode of Peer to Peer, the podcast, host Dr. Ben LaHood will be joined by ophthalmic legend Professor Graham Barrett to talk about his contributions to ophthalmology, including his collaboration on the development of the Ray One EMV. For more information about this episode's topic, and to read the show notes, visit the Peer to Peer Hub at rainer.com forward slash peer to peer. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, please subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. This podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The presenter's views are their own. Rainer does not endorse off-label use. Users must refer to the product labelling and instructions for use for Rainer products in all cases. Not all Rainer products are available in all countries. The full disclaimer can be found in the show notes.